Right now, the world can be divided into two types of people, Twitter people and Instagram people. Now, on Twitter, it's, it's basically one nasty debate after another. I first got a Twitter account in 2009, but really didn't start using it until a couple of years ago, and I was just shocked at the level of meanness on that social media site. I don't have an Instagram account, but the times that I have been on Karen's account, it all looks pretty nice to me. Basically pictures of, of children and, and people sitting in coffee shops, <laughs> mostly coffee shops. See, that's basically Instagram to me. Now, of course, Facebook is, is somewhere in between the two. Some people will attempt a debate on Facebook, but political and religious debate is, is kind of frowned on in Facebook. Now, I think what's true is all these social media sites sort of reflect the personalities of those who post on them. So in general, Twitterites are confrontive sort of people who like to, to argue and debate. Instagrammers, however, are just nice people, and they might just tend to shy away from conflict. Well, here in this story in Galatians chapter 2, between Peter and Paul, uh, I would put Paul into the Twitter group in terms of, of a forceful debate, but it will also put him among the grammars because he was most certainly not being mean. His motives here were not only pure, but this confrontation was absolutely necessary. This debate had to happen, and it had to happen in public. Because Peter's sin was public, the confrontation also had to be public. So if you would open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2 and read along with me, and it's short so it can appear on the screen this morning. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Something crazy happened on Wednesday late afternoon when the Supreme Court handed down their decision on Governor Evers' ruling. Now, before that, some of, us, some of us were really getting ready for a fight, weren't we? Each day that the lockdown, uh, that, that passed among the lockdown, when each bit of new information that surfaced, we were getting more and more feisty. It was almost accumulating by the hour. So some of us were, were, were kind of primed. We were ready for a confrontation like Paul had with Peter. So we read a story like this, and, and honestly, we don't care what the story is about. What we see is that, 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 that Paul is, man, he's, he's courageous, he's tough, he's ready for a fight. And, and we don't care what's in the story, we just uh, want to emulate what Paul is doing. Now, Paul was tough, he, he did have courage, uh, that much is true. However, the reason for the confrontation with Peter is not peripheral to the story, it is the story. Paul had... Uh, Paul did not put up a fight 
for no reason. Paul always picked his fights very carefully. And what he did here, he was dealing with one of those to die for issues. Remember those? The center circle of the most important things in our life, the absolutes. In fact, the very integrity of the gospel and the foundation of the Christian church were at stake here. So let's kind of slow down and look at it's some of these important details. First, we, we read that, that Cephas, which of course is Peter, he came to Antioch. And if you recall, Antioch from, from past sermons was becoming the new center of Christianity. Christianity, of course, was birthed in Jerusalem, but Antioch, again, was becoming the new center of Christianity. It became the launch pad for all of Paul's church planting ventures. Every time uh, he left from Antioch when he went on a church planning uh, uh, mission, and then every time he came back, he always landed in Antioch to update them. Paul and Barnabas literally cut their pastoral teeth here in Antioch. Paul pa pastored in Antioch. He learned to love the believers in Antioch. So what that means is that Peter was coming into Paul's church. Do you see? Now, I'm not suggesting that Paul, by confronting Peter, that he was being territorial at all, but what he was doing, he was wanting to protect the flock at Antioch, the believers whom he had come to love so dearly. That was what was happening here. And we're able to catch some other details here. That The bottom line of the problem fundamentally goes back to our Jesus plus syndrome. If you add anything to the finished work of Christ, if you attempt to add any good work to grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, you're not merely adding something to the gospel, you're actually perverting the gospel. What Paul says in chapter 1, it's another gospel, it's not even actually the real gospel. And Paul did not tolerate any deviation from the gospel. And by now, you are well aware of the anathemas and the curses that Paul calls down upon anybody who would change the gospel. And in this case, it was none other than, the P, uh, none other than Peter who was at the center of the controversy. Now, as we will see, uh, there are no curses brought down upon Peter. So it wasn't quite as bad as the false teachers who were bringing another gospel into the churches of Galatia, uh, but it was enough to require a serious confrontation. And the scene here is really straightforward. Because of Jewish purity laws, a good Jew could not eat with a Gentile. And, and we see this principle at play very often in the Gospels with the Pharisees who were following the letter of the law and they would never sit down and have a meal with the Gentile. It was just forbidden by the law. But because of the gospel, what Paul wrote in chapter 3 of this letter is absolutely true. He wrote, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Likewise, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul wrote this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, all of these, these things are true because of the finished work of Christ. Ephesians 2, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both, that is, that Jew and Gentile, those are the, the two uh, groups here. He has made us both, he has made us both, 
both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. In other words, so bringing Jew and Gentile together so there would be no distinction whatsoever. In other words, Jesus' death and glorious resurrection are the sole grounds for destroying all barriers between Jew and Gentile. There was no longer any reason for a Jew not to eat with a Gentile, to in any, in any ever to separate himself or herself from the, from the Gentiles. So, if that's the case, why did Peter behave in this way? Was it just a misunderstanding on Peter's part? Absolutely not. Peter, as you may know from Acts chapter 10 11, was given the most clear example of this breaking down of this division between Jew and Gentile, I think, anywhere in the New Testament. You remember the story, right? Peter saw this vision of a, of a sheet with, filled with unclean animals lowered from heaven. And in the, in the vision, he heard a command from heaven saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And that same vision and the same command happened three times in a row for emphasis. So Peter would absolutely get it. And, and it was such a, a big and important story that all of Acts chapter 10 and half of Acts chapter 11, which was 66 verses in total, were taken up with this story. Here is one of Peter's clear conclusions from God's supernatural message to him. So, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. There it is, absolutely, with absolute clarity. God shows no partiality, which wonderfully is the exact same conclusion that Paul wrote a few verses earlier in chapter 2. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Look how perfectly Peter and Paul agree on this all-important point. God shows no partiality. So this is what it means, as Paul wrote in verse 14, to keep in step with the gospel. So in order for us to understand what was happening here and what, what Peter was doing wrong, I'm, I'm going to use the, the, the four questions uh, from gospel fluency, the, the four questions that, that Seth has been using in his daily Facebook videos to, to make this a little bit more clear for you. So we would ask the first question, who is God? Well, in this, this context, we would say he is a God who does not show partiality to any tribe, nation, people, or language. Then we'd ask question two, well, what has he done? Well, God has made the gospel available to everyone through the saving work of Christ on the cross. His lack of partiality is chiefly demonstrated by this ultimate sacrifice of love and mercy. Well, then the next question we ask is, well, well, who am I? I? Because of who God is and what he has done, I am saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And I, therefore, am on equal standing with everyone throughout all of history and throughout the entire world who does the same. 
I am not bound in any sense forever by the legal restrictions, restrictions of law and certainly not by any man-made rules. And then finally, based upon who God is, what he has done, who am I because of that? How should I live? My life should be, to use Paul's language here, in step with the gospel in every way. I must not show partiality or add anything to the gospel other than faith in Christ. So that's the, the theology, the doctrine behind what was happening here. Let me, let me walk you through the order of the events that Paul was describing. First of all, Peter was convinced by the gospel that the gospel was for Jew and Gentile alike because of Acts chapter 10 and 11, that whole uh, vision and command. Absolute crystal clarity for him. There, God shows no partiality. So he's convinced of that. Then Peter came to Antioch. Remember Paul's, Paul's church now. Peter came to Antioch and was freely eating with the Gentiles as a demonstration that indeed, yes, God shows no partiality. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. But then something happened. Certain men came from James, and just like that, Peter pulls away from the Gentiles and is no longer eating with them, no longer associating with them. Now, who are these men that, that came from James, and, and how do they have such a profound impact upon Peter? Well, the exact identity of these men is not fully known, but we can, we can kind of read between the lines, and we see that they're most likely Jewish converts to Christianity. So they were raised in the law. They were steeped full in the law, as was uh, the Apostle Paul and Peter. Uh, they were Jewish converts to Christianity who are still promoting obedience to all of the Old Testament laws. So, so what's happening here is Peter knew exactly what he was doing. Do, do you understand this? So then why did he do it? He knew that God shows no partiality, right? Uh, he, he, he knew uh, that, that uh, the, the saving work of Christ does not allow for any partiality. He knew who he was and he knew what he was supposed to do. So then why didn't he do it? Verse 12, because he feared the circumcision party. See, Peter had, had the first three questions down path. And, and understand, if you were in Peter's shoes and you saw that same vision of unclean animals being let down from heaven and the same voice that says to you, Mauer, rise, get up, kill, and eat, you would probably also come to the conclusion that God shows no partiality. So he had first question down, he had the second question down, he had the, the third question down, but when it comes to how then shall I live, he was doing it, wasn't he? He was eating with the Gentile believers in Antioch until these men from James came along. Peter knew all those things, uh, but as a result of their presence, these men from James, he began to fail miserably at this fourth step. We would say Peter was not in step with the gospel because he, he feared these men, and more importantly, he gave in to his fear, didn't he? But what was he afraid of? Well, again, we're not, we're not told exactly. Uh, there could be probably several reasons. Most likely, he was just afraid of his personal reputation because these men from James came from where? 
from Jerusalem, and Peter was the lead apostle. And in Jerusalem, understand, he would have been an absolute hero to the, the believers in Jerusalem. And hopefully you, you have Christian heroes of one kind or another, either uh, those who are near to you or from afar. Maybe it's an author, or a Christian speaker, or a pastor somewhere. One of Karen's heroes is Elizabeth Elliot. She loves, I mean, I like Elizabeth Elliot. She, she loves Elizabeth Elliot, appreciates everything she writes. In fact, she thought she had read all of her books until one day she discovered that there was a book she hadn't read, so she promptly read that book as well. So take your number one Christian hero, multiply it by, by a factor of at least 10, and then we'll begin to understand the hero status that Peter had in Jerusalem. You see, he was not just a hero to them. Peter was like, like a superhero to them. Now, I'm not saying that, that he, he reveled in that status, but he was certainly well aware of it. And if word had gotten back to Jerusalem that Peter was disobeying the law, things are going to go badly for him. Or so he thought. So whatever the reason, the point is clear here. He had a fear of man that dragged him into sin and took him out of step of the gospel, with the gospel. So do you see what our fear of man can do to us? Now, now technically speaking, right, Peter did not change his beliefs about God or about himself. He knew what was true and he knew the right thing to do, but his fear overwhelmed his faith. Let me say that again. He knew what was true. He knew the right thing to do. But in that context, his fear completely overwhelmed his faith. Has that ever happened to you? You knew what was right and you knew why it was right, but you did the opposite thing anyway. Now, now fear may not always be the cause of that happening to us, but fear does make us do all sorts of things that we wouldn't do otherwise. And at the end of the day, what was happening here, this was just Peter's old nature resurfacing again. It really is that simple. Remember, remember Peter, right? Remember old Peter, we might call him, the Peter who denied that he even knew Jesus, not one, not two, but three times, even after he absolutely swore to Jesus' face that that could never happen? Do you see? He's still, in some regard, that same God. He's still that same Peter. But he's also a gospel guy now, isn't he? And that's going to that's gonna make a big difference here. So, of course, for you and I, fear is going to get the best of us at times. Lust is going to sneak up on us and sweep us away with it. Deeper still, the idols of our heart will continue to surface and seek to run and ruin our lives. Sin is not keeping in step with the gospel. But there's always a solution readily available to us, and it's simply this, plain old repentance. Plain old-fashioned repentance. Admit you were wrong. Confess to those you hurt what happened to them, how badly you hurt them. Of course, confess to the Lord what you've done. Allow the gospel which saved you to restore you again and bring you back into full fellowship with the Lord. 
It's really a simple solution, but it can be so extremely hard to do. And here's the thing. How you respond to a confrontation from a brother or sister in Christ or to the conviction of the Holy Spirit often says more about you in that moment than the original sin that got you into trouble in the first place. You see, because gospel people repent. That's what you do. Those who are keeping in step with the gospel, they repent of their sins, but fearful Christians caught up in sin and hypocrisy usually don't repent, honestly. A few months ago, I I told you about a missionary that I was attempting to to come alongside and assist him in his ministry in, in, in in a pretty serious conflict. Well, this is a couple months has, have gone by now, and uh, finally, weeks ago, when the board was presented with all the evidence of their wrongdoing, um, do you think when they saw that, that they apologized and repented and made everything well? Unfortunately not. They hired an attorney. You see, they're already building a wall of separation between this missionary and the organization. But now what they did is they just called in the artillery. They they, they called in, in the big guns. They circled the proverbial wagons. They were not in step with the gospel. But understand this, all that was required in that case was a bit of humility to just see through this confrontation through this evidence that that they're they're wrong and they could they could have corrected all that instantly but instead they they've decided to play hardball they are not in step with the gospel so so how you respond is often more important than than actually the, the sin that you committed because at that moment you're asking yourself, do I really believe that God's grace is lavish and infinitely available to me at all times? We're asking ourselves, am I truly repentant? Or am I just mad? Am I just sad that I got caught this time? Now, in this story, notice that Paul did not call a curse down upon Peter as he did uh, to the false false uh, teachers in chapter 1. In this context, he could have done, done so had the circumstances warranted, warranted it, but Peter's actions did not warrant a curse, but they did warrant a serious and severe confrontation to Peter in front of the entire church. And this was especially true since Peter's sin had led others into the same sin. Look back at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You might recall the famous line from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, the moment that that Caesar realized that his friend uh, Marcus Brutus was one of his assassins. Et tu, Brute, which means you too, Brutus. Is this really happening? Are you really going to take my life? Are you really a part of this? And I think similarly, we could imagine Paul saying something similar. You too, Barnabas? I I can't believe it that you would get caught up in this. So, So given 
Paul and Barnabas' friendship, imagine the level of shock, imagine the level of disappointment that Paul had when he saw his good friend being swept away in the hypocrisy of Peter. Now Paul, remember, Paul really didn't know Peter other than by his reputation, but Barnabas, Barnabas was his gospel partner in Antioch. They cut their ministry teeth together. They were already best buds So this would have been just utterly shocking to Paul. You see, this is why there is no such thing as a private sin. There's no such thing as a private sin. Because our sin impacts other people all the time, whether or not we we would ever admit that that's true. A friend of mine chairs the board of ministry, Child Evangelism Fellowship, but but it's it's in a a different, different country. And just this past week, they had to fire one of their employees due to a moral failure. Now, the employee that was fired happens to be a widowed mother of three school-age children. And the ministry job was her only source of income in a country where, where jobs just are not in abundance. So the board and the directors agonized, agonized deeply over this decision but in the end they had to make that hard call and let her go the the evidence the the sin was just too grievous now i can imagine that this woman woman never thought about the potential impact upon her children i'm sure she loves and adores her children but now all of them together are going to be suffering due to her sinful choices There is no such thing as a private sin. Every last one of our sins may not have that level of consequence attached to it, but every sin impacts us and it impacts other people in some way. Uh, the, the, The concept of a private sin is a chief lie of the enemy. He says, go ahead and do it. He whispers in our in our ear. No one will get hurt. No one will find out. In fact, you deserve this. Just just do it. It's a lie from the enemy because our sin will always impact other people and God holds us accountable for that, doesn't he? Jesus said in the Gospels, you, you know this, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these, what? Say it home with me, little ones to sin, little ones to stumble. Now that's the extreme version, but it's a powerful reminder that private, the, the concept of a private sin is, is just a lie. Peter's sin impacted Barnabas, quoting now, and the rest of the Jews. Now how many people was that? It sounds like a lot of people, doesn't it? And remember, Peter has not just hero status, but superhero status here. So the men come from James, and, and before that, Peter's doing the right thing for the right reasons, and these legalists, these hypocrites of their own, come from James, and Peter is now fearful of his reputation, so he withdraws from the Gentiles, and the Gentile, the, 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 the Gentile believers there, um, and, and of course, the, the, the church in Antioch has already come to, to love Peter because of, of his, his, his status, his, his hero status. So they're watching Peter withdraw from the Gentiles and, and they're like whispering later, did, 
did you see what happened? Those men came and do you see what Peter did? Well, Peter must be right. I mean, we're not, I know the law says, I'm not a Jew, but, but the law says you're not, they're not supposed to uh, associate uh, with, 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 with the Gentiles, that is. Jews are not supposed to associate with the Gentiles. So the Gentile, rather the Jewish Christians, begin to pull away from the Gentile believers as well. Why? Because of Peter's sin. So if Peter withdrew from the Gentiles, it's likely then that all these people followed after him. So do you see how bad things, one, had already gotten? I mean, Paul says the rest of the Jews, that may have been half or more of the church, but had Paul not confronted Peter, the entire church may have been swept away by Peter's hypocrisy, by the sin and hypocrisy of one man, the amount of damage that had already been done and the amount of damage that could yet have been done. In the same way, if we do not confront others, especially when that sin is utterly grievous, much greater sin not might result, absolutely will result. Now, as we do that, we, 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 there's a sense where, where you're, you're bold and courageous, but at the same time, we must also be gentle as a lamb when we do that. Now, if you look at Paul's confrontation of Peter here, and if you kind of take it out of context, if you don't know what's going on, admittedly, it might look that Paul look like Paul's being kind of harsh and brash here. Uh, it sounds like maybe he's he's bragging a little bit, right? Uh, that he says, "I opposed him to his face." You know, it's like he's saying, "Oh, Peter, scary old Peter. He he ain't nothing. I ain't as scared of Peter." I told him what for. I, I confronted him in front of the whole church. And he was so frightened, he scurried away like a, like a scared coon dog. That's what I did. I confronted him. Some would say, do you see, that this was Paul in his early days. I mean, and it's true, right? This letter to the church of, uh, churches in Galatia was Paul's very first letter to any um, to any New Testament church. He had just finished within the, the past year his first church planning missionary journey. So, so he was kind of new. This was the early days. Uh, and people would say, well, that's Paul in the early days and he still has all these rough edges. So, so when he came to Peter and confirmed to his face, you know, he's just, that's the old Paul and rough around the edges and, and maybe we shouldn't do it the same way. And, and obviously decades later, Paul, Paul became much more gentle, but, but here in Galatians chapter 2, Paul's like a roaring lion. He's just, he's going after Peter, and, and that's not right. That understanding is absolutely false. Because this is the same Paul who, in chapter 6 of Galatians, the same book, this isn't decades or years later, the very same book wrote the following. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, now he's thinking about Peter clearly here, among other things. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. See, from our vantage point, Paul 
might have looked really tough and, and maybe a little bit harsh, but we see we have to pair this story in chapter 2 with Paul's words in chapter 6. Uh, so we have the confrontation in chapter 2 and the gentleness in chapter 6, and we put them together and we say, yeah, Paul it has the, the boldness of like a Twitterite, but also the kindness and gentleness of a, an Instagrammer. Uh, he's doing it the right thing for the right reason in the right way. But there's one more layer here that, that needs to be brought out. In addition to everything else, Peter is also led into the sin of legalism. As this diagram shows, Peter was firmly stuck in the middle of this unholy trinity of fear, hypocrisy, and legalism. Now, unfortunately for us, these three work together to form a powerful partnership. Including me, there are four guys in our men's huddle. And last week when we met for, for the last time, uh, it became even more starkly evident to me that the other three guys were either raised in a strong culture of legalism or uh, lived within a strong culture of legalism for a good while. And they're not alone, are they? I mean, there, there are our church is literally filled with people who have experienced something very similar. And there are people that have a history of, of Baptist legalism. Others have a history of Pentecostal legalism. There's actually also Catholic legalism. There is Presbyterian legalism. And if we are not absolutely careful, our church could actually fall into evangelical free legalism. Why? Because no one is immune because legalism is simply adding anything to Jesus. We're again back to the Jesus plus syndrome. Jesus plus anything is a form of legalism. But true legalism, for those who, of you who have experienced it, you understand it's, it's this absolute slavery. It's tyranny over you. And as I said, these three work in a strong partnership with one another. But if I had to choose, I would say that legalism is the thing that drives fear, and then in turn, fear drives the hypocrisy. And isn't this exactly what happened to Peter? Men came from James, demanding that the new Jewish believers adhere to the, all the law. They were, by the way, these men from James, the, the true the first true legalists in the Christian church is, is what they were. And Peter feared them, again, probably fearing his personal reputation back in, in Jerusalem. And uh, that, so then he withdrew from the Gentiles. That led others, almost all the Jews, uh, Jewish believers, including Barnabas, into their own sin of hypocrisy. I appreciate how Jeff... Vanderstelt puts it. He says, deep down, we all want to change so we can justify ourselves to prove our worth. We are all natural-born legalists laboring and toiling under the weight of guilt and insecurity. Have you felt this weight yourself? Do you get stuck in an endless cycle of shame and guilt? Do you ever find yourself striving to, to prove your worth to God, to, to make Him understand that you're worthy of being acceptable to Him? See, there are countless causes 
of legalism, but only one known cure, the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's mercy, do you see what it does? God's mercy gives us the freedom to repent. It gives us the courage to repent because we know that if we do actually repent, that grace is going to just be lavished upon us once again, that we are children of God adopted by Him and, and, and that those loving arms are just waiting to fully embrace us in full fellowship again. But if fear overwhelms your faith, then the only solution is to repent of your fear and again place your faith in the faithful one. What we're doing fundamentally is reminding ourselves of who we are. That we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And that we are on equal standing with everyone throughout history, throughout the world who does the same. We are reminding ourselves through God's word, through what he says about us over and over again, all of our identity in Christ, we're reminded that we're not bound by the legal restrictions of the law. We're not bound by man-made rules. We're not bound by the whispering of the destroyer who whispers in our ear, ear, ears and tells us to do this when we know it's the opposite of what we're supposed to do. We're not bound by any of those things. And that, then, is what allows us to keep in step with the gospel. That we must not show partiality or add anything to the gospel other than faith in Christ. What this also starkly reminds us is how much we need one another. Did Peter need Paul that day? Did Barnabas need Paul that day? Did all of those Jewish converts who were swept away by Peter's hypocrisy and legalism, did they need Paul to stand up for truth, to stand up for the gospel, and, and gently but courageously tell Peter, the superhero of the Christian faith, Peter, you've done wrong. Peter, you are out of step with the gospel. Peter, you need to repent and place your full faith in Christ, whom you know so dearly and love so deeply, you need to do that once again. Praise the Lord that is available to us all of the time. May we see and savor God's grace and mercy to us so that we can be led back in repentance and faith and in full fellowship with Christ. Join me in a word of prayer, please. Father, we, we have a sin nature. Our old self does rear its ugly head. We, we are guilty of pretty much everything in this text. We are hypocrites. We are sin. Whatever it is leads other people astray. Oftentimes, we're hesitant, resistant to repent, even to the point where we, we build walls around the conviction of the Holy Spirit and those who try to speak truth into our lives, and, and then we bring in the artillery and fire back at them. Father, only your prompting, conviction, power can penetrate into our minds and hearts and, and I'm asking that, that, that you do that for us whether the sin was just 
so small in the scheme of things or utterly grievous, the solution is always the same. Repent, turn from the sin, see it for what it is, remind ourselves of of who we are in Christ because of what you've done, and receive that forgiveness and experience great joy once again. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.